Welcome to the Healthy Beast, Dr. Carol Routledge, Chief Scientific and Medical Officer for Small Pharma. Now, we're here to talk about psychedelics, specifically DMT. There's loads of buzz about DMT, but there's loads of buzz about, I think, people using it recreationally. It's called the spiritual molecule, amongst other things. But your focus at Small Pharma is using DMT as a treatment for depression. Is that right? That, that's correct. So actually, we want to use DMT assisted therapy. So it's that treatment um, paradigm together for the treatment of major depressive disorder. And that's what our first clinical trial is all about. So yes, we are developing it as a treatment um, rather than anything else. If people just know it's something you take and you go on a trip. This is this is what there's been all the buzz about it. People say people making claims for it, like you see God and all these kind of things. So how does how does that recreational side square with what you're doing so 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 you're absolutely right um not that i know i've never taken dmt at all so yes people do take dmt and they take dmt for spiritual reasons and for natural reasons but actually when you're developing something as a treatment it is completely different so so dmt which actually is abbreviated from nn dimethyltryptamine is a, a chemical molecule that has a very similar structure to serotonin which is found in the human body in fact there are papers suggesting DMT is found in very low levels in the human brain. And so that's the natural, that's the molecule. It's found in natural sources, so it's found in plants, it's found in animal species. And like I said, potentially it is found in very, very low quantities in the human brain. But but when you're developing a treatment, then you have to make your own molecule and you have to make your own molecule to a very regulated and high quality standard. And so that's exactly what we've done. So we have made our own DMT and it is that DMT that we go, that we have progressed into a clinical trial and that we will take all the way through to patients. It's not, it's not new that it's been used as a therapy because it's been written about being used therapeutically for centuries is that right is that how you came to know about it so it's new that it is being it is being used much more formally in clinical trials that that is new so you know you're right people have taken ayahuasca which has actually it has a number of active ingredients in it but actually dmt is the psychedelic component but it has a number of other chemical molecules within ayahuasca so you know that has been taken for spiritual reasons and actually there is a depression trial looking at ayahuasca which was shown positive but that you know they aren't the reasons we came to dmt so small pharma is a company that i guess has a strategy for looking at molecules or looking at drugs with a known chemical entity and then utilizing or using the known chemical entity to develop um for other reasons that you know the history of small pharma is to use known molecules or known active ingredients and then use them for something different and you know they they became quite interested in the psychedelic field psilocybin is now being developed by a number of companies and actually they did a a review across the whole space and and the reason that they selected DMT as the psychedelic of choice to take forward in psychedelic assisted therapy is based on the preclinical research so that that demonstrated that it was a very safe well-tolerated molecule and actually in animal models of depression it, it had antidepressant activities but then also in clinical studies research studies Imperial College have shown that the mechanism of action of DMT appears to be very similar to that of psilocybin but actually that mechanism of action happens in a very very short period of time and the psychedelic experience is incredibly short and so if you're developing psychedelic assisted therapy and the psychedelic experience is sort of a means to an end it is important but it's a means to an end then actually trying to select a molecule that has a short experience rather than a molecule that has five to six hours like psilocybin or actually above 10 hours like lsd 
then that makes it a molecule of choice. And that's why Small Pharma decided that they wanted to start working on DMT. There are no formal clinical trials at all, other than the research trials that, that have been conducted on for DMT. And so Small Pharma have now taken it into the first formal clinical trial. And like I said, we've manufactured our own molecule to GMP. That stands for good manufacturing practice. So it's a very high quality level, very high purity. And we are taking that mole- or have taken that molecule into a clinical trial. This 45 45- five minutes experience or trip or whatever you want to call it that, yep. that yeah, you can correct you can correct me afterwards if, I, if I've said something wrong so this this um this 45 minute experience I, I also haven't taken DMT but you know I've heard it described by by friends and people I don't know as this you know they explain it in different ways I mean a doctor I know who took it he dismissed he took it recreationally and he he dismissed all the seeing god stuff and he just went well it was nice it was a hallucination and that was it so from a, all, all these different personal experiences that people have recreationally, could you describe clinically what's happening in these these 45 minutes? Uh, apologies if I said 45 minutes. Actually, it's a much shorter period of time than that. So actually, the, the DMT psychedelic half-life is anywhere between 15 and 30 minutes, depending on how you infuse it. So so it's actually very short. So, so the way that the clinical trial runs, so as a subject, you know, if I talk you through a subject coming into the trial and what they what they go through. So first of all, they've been screened and selected for the purpose of the trial. And then on the day of dosing, they come in and and the the therapist and the psychiatrist speak to them about the experience they're going to have. So that takes about 10 minutes and they explain that they're going to go on this um, journey. They're going to have this psychedelic experience. And and actually what they need to do is keep their minds open to the experience they have. For a patient, that's really important to try and keep your mind open. And prior to them coming in on the dosing day, this will have been explained to them before. But on dosing day, the psychiatrist and therapist take about 10 minutes to do that. They're then given DMT in the presence of the psychiatrist and the therapist. Like I said, that experience takes about, you know, an average of 20 plus or minus minutes. And then when they come out of their experience, the the therapist then takes them through an integration session. And the integration session is, is, is kind of almost a discussion between the therapist and the patient. And it basically starts to help them make sense of the experience that they've just had. And that starts to set that path to to, to, I guess, recovery and that path to therapy. And their experience, and like I said, I've never taken it, but, you know, I have heard people describe it. So, you know, you do have visual hallucinations, you can have auditory hallucinations, you, you feel, I guess, you know, a, a different, completely different sense of time, or you lose sense of time, you sometimes feel out of body. So it is very subjective. So different subjects, different patients have a different experience. But but yes, normally that involves hallucinations, either visual or auditory ones. But then those effects wear off very rapidly. And then like I said, then you go to the therapy session again. And do, the, do you think there's a link between the extent to which they do and don't have hallucinogenic experiences and how great an effect it may have in tackling the depression so so there are certain people for example that it doesn't have much of an effect on and therefore they don't see much and therefore they don't get much improvement or can you not measure by the strength of the experience can you not you can can't kind of predict how much of an effect it's going to have do you see what I mean I do see what you mean, Richard. Actually, it's a really, really good question and one that we will explore as we go through um, the, the clinical trial. But, you know, based on discussions with Imperial, and as I mentioned, they've done a, a few research studies, then 
I, I don't think it's exactly one for one. So, so the intensity of the, the experience and the experience certainly does seem to be beneficial to the therapeutic outcome. But actually, you can have a really challenging experience. So the subject has a very challenge. Some subjects have a really calm experience and some subjects have a more challenging one. But actually, that also results in positive therapeutic. And I'm talking about psilocybin now in, because we haven't done this for DMT yet, but that results in positive therapeutic outcome. And, and sometimes the challenging experience are just is just due to what that person is, you know, thinking about and what they dig up and what they pull up during their therapeutic experience. So whether it's a really positive psychedelic experience or a or a more challenging one, the therapeutic um, benefit is still there. But you know, you have to also think this is this is a pharmacological agent. It is a drug. So it binds to a number of different proteins in the brain. And based on binding to those proteins, it has downstream effects and it has downstream effects on neuronal networks. So so, you know, it, potentially, I'm going to say, regardless of the type of psychedelic experience, it is still going to do that if you give the right dose and the subject has the right exposure of the drug in their body. So it's still a pharmacological drug. The subject just happens to have a psychedelic experience when the drug binds to all of those proteins in the brain. When you're you're screening people for this, is it to do with levels of depression or is it to do with you know their age and other health how, how, what are there, are there certain people that it wouldn't be good for for example so we we have clearly um as a formal clinical trial we have exclusion and ex, uh, exclusion and inclusion criteria for example an inclusion criteria they have to come to um register for the trial for screening with depression so so even if they're on medication already even if they're on ssris the SSRIs need not to be working very well because they have to come with a with depression. So we rate that using a certain depression rating scale and they have to score a certain um, score on that rating scale to be allowed into the study. So there are a number of inclusion criteria like that. And, you know, there are a few exclusion criteria um, in that they can't have comorbid disease. So by that, they can't have schizophrenia as well, or they can't have psychosis as well, or they can't have ADHD as well. So, you know, there are exclusion criteria that we have to include too. But actually, they, you know, and they, I was going to say psychedelics, but DMT is, is a safe drug. You know, if I think of the numbers of novel chemical entities that I have taken into the clinics. I've worked in, in psychiatry and neurology for quite a long time. I've worked in the pharmaceutical industry, in biotech, in the US and the UK for quite a long time. And I've taken lots of different molecules into the clinic for lots of different reasons. And I would say DMT is one of the safer ones because, you know, with new chemical entities, they have a certain chemical st- structure. Now you will have gone through toxicology studies but you never quite know what additional side effects you may see in in humans until you get into humans. But from a side effect point of view, DMT is actually really clean. It is really clean. So, you know, we don't have lots of contraindications around that. Um, We don't have lots of exclusions around that, but we do want to know the patients are coming in with depression. The safety aspect was going to be my next question, actually, because I I grew up with all the scare stories about psychedelics. You know, it was... In particularly particularly acid but you know it was of all of all the drugs you do maybe crack and heroin aside but you know that psychedelics are something you've you, to, to, to be feared and you had all the stories of people bad trips and never being the same again has has this public perception which you know may be completely incorrect in lots of 
to, with lots of psychedelics, but has this public perception been a been something that's held you back? Has it been difficult in your speaking about it with potential trial subjects, for example? Has it been a... Again, that's a really interesting question. And, and if, if I just answer it from the field in general first, so certainly that perception has held the research back in the field of, of psychedelic assisted therapy in general. But actually, that is now definitely picking up, as you probably noticed. So, so the more research that is done and the more, uh, the better understanding of safety we have, then, then, then the better it is. And that's where we're getting to now. I'm just going to talk about me for a second. Like I said, I haven't taken psychedelic drugs, but, but you know, I was really skeptical before I came to interview a small farmer actually I mean I knew this field was starting to move but 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 I was quite skeptical but after speaking to the team at small farm and speaking to some of the scientists at Imperial College then I really did start to understand both the safety and the therapeutic potential of this type of treatment and you know you kind of have to think of any drug that is taken not in a controlled setting so not in a proper setting so anything that anybody could take on the street including psychedelics if you take the wrong dose or you you know you're the wrong person and and that drug kind of you know has some reaction based on who you are and what you've been through and that then that is unsafe. So, so taking any drug on the street is, is potentially unsafe. But taking most drugs in a controlled clinical setting isn't. And I would say exactly the same for psychedelics. I mean, in general, I think these are really safe drugs. But if you take them in a clinical setting with a therapist at the right dose or at the right doses, then I think that the, safe, the safety profile is extremely positive and extremely good. So before interviewing for Small Farmer, I guess that, yeah, that whole street drug piece probably would have put me off. But then when you understand how we're going to do the trial, how we're making the medicines, and mostly for me, the therapeutic potential, you kind of can't ignore it. And in terms of, you know, do I think it's put volunteers and and particularly patients off? Not at all. In fact, completely the opposite, which was also a bit of a surprise to me. So so I was on um, Radio 4 a while ago, just talking about the, you know, why we're developing DMT-assisted therapy and, and the mechanisms and how we feel that it would really get to the root cause of depression and it will break those negative, ruminative cycles of thought that people with internalizing disorders have. And then once you've broken those, then it means that therapy will work. I had received so many emails from patients, and I mean so many, and not one of them, not one of them mentioned the psychedelic experience or a psychedelic experience or having to have one or being worried about it everybody talked about the mechanism of this approach and they said what you said is exactly what I know I need I need something to open me up so I've been on SSRIs and I've been on other treatments and I've been on just therapy and nothing is so it's worked, but nothing has really worked that I feel, you know, I'm moving out of, out of depression. And, but what you say to break those negative pathways, to open me up so that I can really be receptive to therapy. I know I need that. And honestly, that's what nearly everybody said. So they talked to me about, you know, what they'd been through, what they'd been through in their lives, but how they really felt that this would help them and asked how they could register for the clinical trial. But nobody mentioned the a concern about going through a psychedelic experience, which was one really interesting to me, but really surprising because I thought they would. But no, they want a treatment and they want a treatment that they will think will get to the root cause of their problem and that will really help them moving out of this. That's what they're looking for. It almost sounds from, from what you said there as though before trying it, they have some concept of how it's going to work because this, ex- this expression you use, like, open me up, it made me think of of something you said in in another interview of yours, where 
you you talked about breaking the neural pathways i think you i think you said so is this is this getting to and again forgive me if you've explained this already but i'm getting it clear in my head but is this getting to how it's actually working as far as we're concerned it's kind of i don't know how do we put it there are blockages in the brain there are things that there are things that are not getting through there are these feedback loops that are causing people to get into these kind of repetitive depressive mindsets so it's that kind of thing absolutely correct that that's spot on so the i guess they're called internalizing disorders anxiety disorders like ocd post-traumatic stress disorder depressive disorders there are a number of them and yeah i i think the concept is that you have this cycling negative um, thought process. And based on that, you build these ingrained neuronal connections. And that's potentially why and SSRIs do work, by the way, I am not criticizing them at all, they do work. But maybe that's why they don't absolutely get to the root cause because they can't break those. But actually, what we believe psychedelics do, and like I said, it still is a concept, but the data is starting to support this fMRI data, EEG data and preclinical data is it manages to break those ingrained neural connections. And so you see an increase in neuronal connections, you see an increase in synaptic plasticity. And that then allows the therapy to work for these patients. So you've probably heard me talk about this. And it's not my analogy It actually comes from Imperial College, but it's a bit like a snow globe. So the psychedelic is when you shake up the snow globe, and the snow is swirling around. Um, and then as the snow settles is much more like as you come out of the psychedelic experience and take the therapy, then it settles you into you know, a new path and makes new neuronal positive connections. And that's why we think psychedelic assisted therapy should work. And that's why we think it really should get to the root cause of the problem. Because that, I know you, you said you didn't want to speak badly of, of antidepressants, of SSRIs, but I, I, how it's been explained to me before is that they're very useful, can be very useful in terms of getting someone through a difficult time. So, you know, uh, something, you know, they, they might be depressed and there's a very difficult time in their life. The, the SSRIs can help them get through, but they don't really fix anything this is this is how it's been explained in an unscientific way to me that they that, yeah they're good for getting you over a hump but they don't really fix what's going on so the people coming to you and most of them people that have had they've probably tried various antidepressants and maybe they found that that it's that it's that they've been helpful in the same way that you know morphine's helpful when you're in hospital it's not helpful when you leave it's that kind of helpful for a bit but ultimately they're not fixing whatever it is is going on in your brain so sort of so you know as i said ssris do work i mean they have saved a lot of people there is no doubt about that do they get to the root cause i think maybe that's the kind of question you're asking it i probably don't think so and the other issues i guess with ssris is that they take that it takes a, a while for the effectiveness or the efficacy to come on and it also takes a while to find the correct ssri for the correct patient and we still even though they've been around a very long time and i've worked on these when i was in pharmaceutical industry by the way we still don't truly understand why some ssris work really well in some patients and some ssris work really well in other patients so so they do work but probably in about a third of the population but you know what richard that's no different from most of the drugs you know if you look at dementia Aricept works in 
um, or, or dinepazil, as, the, as it's called, works in about a third of dementia patients very transiently. So, so it isn't really any different. But, but do they get to the root cause? Probably not. But it's not, you know, they do more than morphine, like you just treat in hospital and you don't really come out. So people do take SSRIs for a long time. And it does definitely keep their depression at bay. And it controls symptoms definite but is it really breaking you know changing is it really breaking anything probably not probably not and in a lot of patients SSRIs don't work and you know we don't know that psychedelic assisted therapy is going to work in every patient either and in fact the likelihood is it will not but but I think it will work in more patients than than SSRIs will and and it will do that fundamental thing it will really get to the root cause of the that ingrained pattern of behaviours and that ingrained pattern of thought processes. Also, it must be quite quite rewarding because, as you say, with antidepressants, you have to take them, go away, and see how you are in a week or two weeks. With with DMT, if it's working, you presumably can see it working from from the get go. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. In fact, SSRIs take a little bit longer than a couple of weeks to, for the efficacy to come on. So, so it is a, you know, a bit of a trial in that you, you, you go away for six weeks and then you may have to change it, go away for six weeks. So it, usually eventually you get an SSRI that works, but you're right. The DMT assisted therapy should have an immediate onset of efficacy. And then that efficacy should last for a period of time. And again, we don't absolutely know how long for DMT. And that's what this clinical trial and the next ones we move to will start to test. We will be able to understand if um, a dose of DMT with therapy um, is effective for three months, is effective for six months. If you have when you get six months, if you just need therapy or when you get six months, if you need another dose of DMT and therapy. So we will work all of those things out, but it will have a, a significant duration of action and it certainly will not be something you take every week or every um, month and certainly not every day so so you're right immediate onset of activity and long duration of action what's the time scale for your trials when are we going to know how well it's working yeah that's a good question so we're in the middle of um so we, we have a trial that's in two parts so we have um a healthy volunteer part in, in um, part A. And the reason we're doing healthy volunteers is that we're looking at psychedelic naive subjects. So we just want to understand the tolerability of different doses in psychedelic naive subjects. And the reason we're doing that is because um, we think many patients will also be psychedelic naive. And so we just wanted to understand what was the right dose to take into the patient study. So we're kind of about halfway through that. So, you know, a few more months, we should be at the end of the phase one part, and then we'll immediately go into the, the phase two part. Um, and, you know, so at the moment, I guess we're scheduled to finish sometime towards the end of 2022. But, you know, these trials can speed up, they can slow down, they can, you know, if it goes really, really well, we might be able to speed it up. And But, but yeah, so somewhere next sometime next year we should understand i just wrote down something you said because you used you used a phrase i'd not heard before which were psych, psychedelic naive subjects presumably you're just talking about people that haven't taken psychedelics before rather than people that don't know anything about them Is that, yeah. the, the naive just means you haven't taken them yeah but, absolutely absolutely and actually but, specifically the serotonin the serotonin psychedelics we want them not to have taken those patients can have taken them by the way but but they they should not have taken one in the last six months but we still think a lot of patients will come onto the trial who have never taken one before so 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 yeah i guess that that's that's um the way you talk about it psychedelic naive but you know tons about psychedelics but by by that definition you are also psychedelic naive right 
I am psychedelic naive. Yeah, no, I am psychedelic naive. And actually, some people criticize and say, well, if you're going to do clinical trials and psychedelics, you probably should take a psychedelic and see what it's like. But I am psychedelic naive, correct? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I don't think that, I don't think you, you shouldn't say that to medical professionals because you, you can't make them take all the things that they're giving people. It's not how it works. But with, with one like this that, so many, I, mean, I mentioned the, the doctor friend who took it. So, so many people who, you know, we're not talking about unhealthy people who'll take anything and people that don't smoke, do lots of sport. Very healthy people I know have gone and taken it when they don't take other drugs to see what it's like. So, yeah, I guess I, I, I would never criticise you, but I mean, the question would come up. The question comes up. I mean, it's illegal, right, still. It is absolutely legal. So, so, you know, we need a home office license, or at least we don't because we contract out the clinical work, we contract out the manufacturing work, but, but the organizations that we contract that work out to, they have to have a home office license and it has to be stored as per that home office license. So it absolutely is still a scheduled drug. And yes, it is illegal. But, but that, but you've, you've mentioned your, your ways of getting it. That illegality doesn't slow down your professional pr- no no so we have had it manufactured we contract with the manufacturing organization they have a home office license that allows them to manufacture and allows them to store the clinical site that we use has a pharmacy that prescribes and dispenses they also have a home office license that allows them to store and dispense dmt so as long as you do everything in a the appropriate regulatory manner covered by the appropriate licenses then it doesn't slow anything down no and it doesn't affect uh, cost and so forth no, having a home office license doesn't. No, it doesn't affect cost of manufacturing or cost of dispensing. No, because I, I just it just made me think because um, I've been doing a lot of work with medical medicinal cannabis and this is legal, but it's so expensive that it's, it's legal if you're super rich. It's one of it's one of these things. But with DMT, it's this is not a, this is not an issue. It's not no, and that's also why we uh, no, it's not an issue. And, and as I said, we 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 manufacture. Um, our own but actually even for the patients this is why we are going down the formal regulatory route to the market because we want reimbursement for this molecule for patients we don't want patients to have to go and pay you know thousands to seek a treatment like this that we really genuinely believe is going to work we want to take it down the the you know the formal route so that it's accepted by um for example in the uk the nhs it's accepted by nice so we want to demonstrate the efficacy and safety one needs to demonstrate so that it's an acceptable treatment and then the patient should get reimbursement like they do for any other medication um, and then the patient doesn't have to pay. Has there been um has there been much resistance from other parts of the medical profession to what you're doing? Um there has and again very good question. You know, I've, I've worked in the field of psychiatry and neurology for quite a long time. I have a number of really good colleagues, ex-colleagues and and very good friends as well and because I think there is a lot more published in this area than then you know there is a growing acceptance that this is such a, a beneficial thing to do that I think a lot of people have already kind of started to change their minds but I have talked to a, a couple of psychiatrist um, colleagues who for example work at 
um, the medical center in Amsterdam. Now, now, and they were kind of, why, why are you doing this? You know, this is not a good thing to do. Why are you doing this? And of course, they see the other side and not necessarily from a psychedelic, by the way, but you know, they do see the other side of people coming into the hospital who've taken, I don't know, morphine or substances of abuse, crack cocaine or, or whatever. And they come into the hospital. That's the side they see. But then once you, you know, you sit down, you talk to them, you explain the mechanism, you explain why they should work and then talk about some of the publications and the results. Actually, they are very readily converted over to believing this could be a really, really um, valuable treatment. But you do have to, I guess, inform and educate. It's still a pretty new field. I mean, like I said, it certainly is moving fairly rapidly now. Um, And a number of companies are developing the different psychedelics with with therapy. And there are a lot more publications. And I think like Small Pharma, you know, we, we talk to a number of people, we've been on the radio. So I think it is starting to be understood a lot better why this approach may be so beneficial. But you still have to educate, you still have to inform, you still have to have people understand why this is going to be so positive. Um, but like I said, they come from a different side. So I can understand their first reactions. And it was probably mine before I came to work in this field. You know, it probably would have been my reaction if I'd have thought about it. Oh, this isn't really a very good idea. But it is a very good idea. It's a, it's a very good point you made there, actually, because you think you think if you want to know about the effects of something you talk to a psychiatrist they're going to know best but by very definition they're only going to have seen the people where something's gone wrong yeah yeah that's correct yeah so for for all for all their best clinical judgment they're just looking at sick people and they don't have necessarily the figures on how many people have taken these things recreationally and been fine and let let alone you know doing what you're doing the reason I asked originally about the rest of the medical profession because the company you work for small pharma I mean the name's not an accident right it's because we're doing it a different way I guess we're we're doing it a different way nothing against large pharma and like I said I've spent half my life more than half my life in large pharma just because we're doing it different differently yeah and it but it's a it's a it's it's a very it's a very cheap jibe to talk about not not saying that's what your name is, but people make this this cheap jibe about the whole of the pharmaceutical industry when 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 what they generally are is they they don't like one thing it's doing. But you notice when in times of uh, in times of vaccines, suddenly the discussion changes a bit. So do you think it do you think the industry gets a hard time unfairly? Um, I, I do. I do. Obviously, you do. <laughs> Do you think they get? I mean, they get a hard time unfairly for various different reasons. So they they get get a hard time unfairly because they're commercial. But if they weren't commercial, they could not. Like you said, the vaccine is a really good example. If they weren't commercial, then they would not have the funding to develop these drugs and to develop them well, you know, and as thoroughly as they do. And the vaccines is a prime example of how basically they are going to bring us out of this pandemic, and they are the only thing that is. And actually, pharmaceutical co- companies have come together to do it so that so that's great but he you know but they also get a hard time about you know being um too large and not working on anything innovative that is also extremely untrue um you know they have some brilliant scientists in the industry and you know they may not be as nimble as we can be because you know there does tend to be a hierarchy and there does tend to be a structure but they do have innovation they have some great scientists and and also they you know they do change their model they're flexible in terms of their model and so now you know pharmaceutical industry is always also outward facing so they collaborate a lot with external scientists with external organizations with external 
external small companies. So, so you know, they are quite flexible in terms of how they look for new targets and and how they look at different means of of developing drugs. So, so yeah, I can see they get a hard time, but you know, most of the treatments we all take today would not be there without the pharmaceutical industry. You know, and and I'm not saying things couldn't be changed to make them a little bit more nimble or make decision making a little bit better, but they've done a lot of good work as well. And yeah, we wouldn't be in the position we were in from a health point of view without them. I think I think the two areas that people probably have the most to most to be concerned about is probably is opioids and also and and antidepressants because they feel this 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 is the perception it's and it's my perception by the way certainly with opioids they feel that this is the this is the way the industry wants to deal with this and it kind of pushes out you know new potential things because because they're because I don't know you could you could be cynical and say because it's just because they want to make money or you could look at it the other way and say it's more likely just that the medical profession quite rightly is cautious about changing you know you yeah. but but not, neither I mean you know and certainly not the first one so so I have heard that um many many times that you know the pharmaceutical industry doesn't want to cure anything they don't want to cure anything they just want to make it so that somebody has to take a drug every single day for the rest of their life so that they get the money honestly that is really rubbish and really really rubbish but but it, but you know and I'm sure you don't think this but people think it's really easy to develop a new innovative really effective drug it isn't. It isn't. And, and particularly when you're talking about psychiatry and neurology, you know, understanding how the brain works and what goes wrong in various psychiatric disorders and neurological disorders is really, really difficult because we have so few methodologies that can help us explore the brain because it's inside this skull. So we have imaging now, but, you know, imaging is a pretty heavy tool. You can't see what happens between neurons, between synapses within cells. So it's actually really hard to fully elucidate what goes wrong in disease you know what what pathways go wrong what targets go wrong what, what the etiology of disease is what the pathology of disease is it's not that easy to understand in terms of cns disorders and and pharma are striving across all the diseases um neuroscience and oncology to bring forward new targets that they think will be very safe and truly truly effective but Richard, it honestly is not that easy. So they put a lot of money into it. They really do put a lot of money into it. As I said, they have excellent scientists and slowly, slowly we are making progress. You know, a lot of progress has been made in the oncology area. Some progress has been made in the psychiatry area, in the neurology area, particularly for neurodegenerative diseases, for example, we are still fairly slow, but that's not because pharma aren't bringing new drugs forward and they're not trying to develop new drugs. They are but they're just not proving that efficacious. And so they're just not that as successful in that area, but it's not for lack of trying. It really isn't. And they absolutely do not want, you know, to, to not bring forward innovation because somebody can take an SSRI for the rest of their lives. You can't forget that SSRIs work and they have saved many, many, many people from suicide and from, so they do work. But, but you're also right that we haven't moved on a lot, particularly in depression from SSRIs. So new molecules come to the market and they've come to the market over the past few years but they still tend to be an SSRI with something you know like an SSRI with a 5-HT3 antagonist or an SSRI with a 5-HT1 antagonist so there's still much of a muchness but it's but it's not from lack of trying to identify new targets and lack of trying to identify new drugs it is just very difficult to do that. Yeah you're quite you're, you were quite rightly cautious when you talked about the potential scope of this 
But, I mean, we could speculate that it could potentially be huge. It could revolutionise the treatment of depression, I think. It really, really could. I think it could potentially be huge. And not just depression, anxiety disorders too. Even um, cessation of substance abuse, I think it could. I mean, this, this, is, not, this is not helpful because it's anecdotal. It's me talking about people taking it illegally. But people who I trust have talked about a clarity of mind that comes from taking it again you know this is you, you don't have you you of course wouldn't recommend people taking it illegally but I'm, I'm allowed to say what I've heard and and this this kind of a, a real a real that they that they almost find difficult to explain but a clarity of mind that it's almost like it's ironed out some bullshit in the brain again not a word you would use but you know and it's um and and it's kind of straightened things out in their minds just sort of things they were worried out before it's kind of pushed pushed worries and and yeah as you say it's it's difficult to understand exactly how it works and it's going to be different for other people but it sounds like it could potentially revolutionize so many people yeah no I think you're right and and you're right also anecdotally you hear about this sense of well-being you you hear about people taking it to stop smoking for example and and you know and clearly I do not advocate just taking the dose you want to take on the street because because that's the wrong thing to do honestly that is a wrong thing to do but I but I clearly do do advocate taking these drugs once they're developed in the right setting for the right reasons. And then I do think they can work across a number of therapeutic indications. I really, really do. And, you know, there's lots of discussion about legalizing psychedelics. But I guess the, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to make too much of a comment about that. But as I said earlier in our discussion, anything taken how you want to take it at whatever dose you want to take it at on the street is not the ideal way to take something. You need to really understand the dose that is going to be effective, safe and tolerable. And it takes clinical trials, basically, to understand that. I, I agree. I agree with what you said, but I, I would take that as a pro personally. I would take that as a pro legalization argument. Because you take that, you then take the street element out of it, and you know that you can you can then go and do things responsibly. I mean, you know, it, it's a it's a point that's been made before, but it's worth making. Heroin deaths wouldn't happen if it wasn't a street drug. I mean, I'm not saying they wouldn't, but you know, 99% of them just would not just would not happen. So I, I, I agree. I agree with you. You shouldn't just go go and take things you don't know what's going to happen. But for me, that's a pro legalization argument rather than. But, but not pro legalization for the street, I guess, because you still don't. Well, yeah, know. but there wouldn't. Yeah, but I want to say if, if there's le- if there's legalized, you take the street out of it. That's the, for yeah, me yeah. the argument with all of these things. Yeah. You take the street out of it, and you you make you know you, no one's no one's buying no one's making moonshine and buying dodgy alcohol anymore, are they? Why <laughs> would you? No, well, again, people will some places not, but they don't need to. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I, I, I understand. You don't want to, you don't want to get in, into that area, but just from what you said, that meant for me, that's a reason to to legalize stuff. But that's for that's perhaps a discussion for another for another day. It is, but the other, I, yeah, I think it probably is. But the other aspect that we mustn't forget um, is the therapy piece as well. So you know, I'm not saying that somebody who goes and just takes it won't have this sense of well being and like I can't remember how you described it, but this you know this open enlightened. Uh, um, so I can't say they won't have that. But, but you know, if you are trying to treat a disorder, the therapy is absolutely 
key. And so, and that's why an in-clinic treatment with a therapist is the way that we, and I think anybody else would want to put forward a treatment like this, because the therapy is really key and it is DMT assisted therapy. So the whole point of it is that it makes therapy work so much better. So it does that resetting, which is really important itself. And I guess somebody who's just reset may, may feel this sense of enlightenment, but in terms of therapeutic utility and therapeutic potential, then the therapy is really important. And that's why the two should go together okay fantastic if people want to find out more what's the best place to go is your what your website is smallpharma.co.uk yeah 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 so go to the website and if anybody wants to you know understand more about the clinical trial particularly the patients that may want to register for the clinical trial then there is a link on the website or you know they can email us and we can put them in the in contact with the clinical research organization that is conducting our clinical trial Okay, fantastic. Well, it's incredibly interesting and I wish you the best of luck with everything. I really wait to, can't wait to find out how it progresses. So Dr. Carol Routledge, Chief Scientific and Medical Officer of Small Pharma, thank you very much. And thank you very much, Richard. Thanks. Thanks again to Dr. Carol Routledge. The company is Small Pharma. The pharmaceutical is DMT. Dr. Carol Routledge is their chief scientific and medical officer. You can find out more at smallpharma.co.uk. Healthy Beast is healthybeastpodcast.com and at healthybeastpodcast on Instagram. Thanks very much for listening.